ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. There's a regal ceremony underway. The Queen is in attendance, the whole hive is buzzing. And there in the shadows, one little misshapen creature is doing a little dance. It's wagging its tail end, trying to send a signal. What's it all about? Well, we'll find out a little later. Hello, this is Future Tense. I'm Anthony Fennell. And in this episode, understanding insects, bees in particular, and trying to overcome problems with pollination. I mean, the trouble with insects is, of course, we probably have quite a few extinctions already happening, but we don't know which they are because we don't know much about our insects. You don't see the number of moths that's coming to light at night anymore. Or on a hot, humid evening, you used to drive... Certainly a worrying trend to think of such a massive decline in such a short period in three decades. Crops will fail. Prices of vegetables, fruit, I'd say a lot of starvation would happen. It wasn't so long ago that news reports right across the world were filled with such dire predictions. But is it possible that things weren't quite as bad as they seemed? Well, let's get an answer to that question from Alan Doran at the Monash Data Futures Institute at Monash University. Even though, you know, the insect Armageddon may have been not quite overblown, it was certainly overgeneralised because some insect species are actually doing quite well at the moment. But... I don't think there's any doubt that the biodiversity of insect species is at risk and we don't have a good grasp because we don't have good data on many insect species past population sizes and so it's very hard for us to make general broad statements across the board. But when we look at bee species, for instance, there are globally about 20,000 species of bee. Of those, most people are just familiar with honeybees and bumblebees, of which there are a few species. And when we think about bees, we typically think about those insects. And in particular, when we think about agriculture and bees, because we're so heavily dependent on managed honeybee hives in Australia, on the mainland anyway, exclusively, in Europe also managed bumblebee hives, we ignore the other, you know, 19,000 and something uh, species of native bee because we don't manage them. And that also means we don't have very good data on them. And so whilst we recognise that we're destroying bee habitat, especially native bee habitat, so forests and the other kinds of landscapes in which they live, we can't say with any certainty a lot about a lot of those bee species. There are exceptions, like there are bee researchers internationally who are looking at native bees and trying to understand their populations and which of them are at risk, but it's very hard to get data. So in summary, there's good news and bad news and still a lot of question marks about the health of our insect populations. My name is Thomas Schmickel. I'm professor at the Institute of Biology at the University of Graz, and my lab specifically is called the Artificial Life Lab. Now, Professor Schmickel's research is focused on honeybees in particular, 
and he has two projects currently on the go, funded by the European Union and both involving robotics. The first is called Hivopolis. You could also call it like a smart beehive 2.0 because currently there are many companies offering smart beehives and 99% it is monitoring the beehive. So if you if you buy a smart beehive, what you get is a beehive which has some sensors inside that monitor something like the temperature, the humidity, maybe the sound level, so how much buzzing you have in, in the beehive and some other factors, but mostly monitoring and observation. And what we do in Hivopolis, we add another component to it, which is modulation, so changing, having some effect on the colony. And then, of course, we have the sensing part too. And we try to close the loop. So we have like a, a feedback, a control loop uh, through sensors and actuators. And that basically means management. Whenever you have a closed loop control, you actively manage a system towards specific goals. And our goal is pollination. <laughs> Everything we do in our lab is now dedicated to monitoring the collapsing ecosystems around us or supporting, stabilizing the collapsing ecosystems around us. And in Hyphopolis, we have the same goal, but we approach it from a different direction. There we look at the base democracy in the beehive. There are many decision-making processes in the beehive that is done just by the workers amongst themselves. So for example, they use bee dances to choose to which flowers to fly in the environment. And we are looking in what can we do with robots, you could say, augmenting the beehive, if we can modulate those dances and favor some places for pollination flights by these foraging bees and disfavor some other places where it's maybe not so good for them to fly or maybe we would like to have a natural reserve for other pollinators so that the honeybees don't fly there and other wild bees and, and bumblebees and butterflies and so on that they can then forage on these sites. And there we look into these decision-making processes. It's more like decentralized control. It's more swarm intelligence is a buzzword that is often used in this context. And we look at these decision-making systems all across the hive concerning the foraging, concerning the brood rearing, the brood nest region, concerning the honey storage area, how the honey is distributed and stored there. And in each of these places, we look at the decisions that collectively are made by the bees and how we can modulate them. First we study, then we model, then we modulate them. Again, in favor of maximizing the pollination service that the bees provide to the ecosystem around them. And does that include the, the physical structure, the design of the, the hive itself? Will you be looking... Yeah, the hive itself, it's augmented with digital technology, with mechatronics all across the hive. So there we have multiple fixed installed robots there at various places. These robots will never leave the hive. They just sort of influence the bees' behavior and then they fly out and then they have their effect on the surrounding ecosystem. But it is more distributed by the nature of uh, the approach that we take there across the hive. Which brings us back to that little dancing creature I mentioned at the beginning of the show, performing before the queen. <laughs> The second project Professor Schmickel is involved in is called RoboRoyal. And it's about using one of the tiny android bees he talked about to try and influence the behaviour not just of the workers, but of the Queen herself. Tim Landgraf is a professor of artificial and collective intelligence, and he's also involved in the project. I mean, if, if I was a bee and I could use my eyes, I would think, oh, 
that doesn't look like a bee, but they don't use their eyes. It's dark. There's no light in there. So they only use tactile and like chemical information. So chemosensory information. And what it does look like? Well, it's basically a little plastic sausage, let's say, the little piece of plastic shaped like a bee on a stick. And that stick is held into the hive. And then we move that with a plotter, basically. So three motors moving this in X and Y, and then we can rotate it as well. And the way those motors move, eventually like let this little bee dummy move in this dance shape. And you're, as I understand it, working on the second generation of this particular robot bee. Yeah. So my PhD thesis was on that topic 15 years ago, and uh, I returned in this project to this topic, and we're building the second version, yes. The honeybee queen is a very, very special animal within the beehive. It's, on the one hand, the beehive is super, let's say, democratic. So like all the worker bees together decide about a lot of stuff in a very decentralized way. But in parallel, some things are really like decided top down by the queen in a more hierarchical way. And in Robo Royale, we take the take of investigating like the, the head of this decision-making system, which is the queen. And we not only look on the queen herself, but also on the courtyard bees, which always surround the, the queen, who take care of her, clean her, feed her, guide her. And we observe this courtyard. This courtyard is a very dynamic thing. So there are other worker bees joining the courtyard while some others go away and spread the pheromones, the, the odors of the queen in the hive. Step one is to observe the queen uh, and to study what the queen and the courtyard actually is doing. That's the first step. And we will investigate, for example, if the queen could be influenced in a way that, for example, she lays more eggs. She more easily finds suitable places for laying eggs. And more eggs means more brood. More brood means more workers. More workers means more pollination towards flowers, towards plants. And this helps then the ecosystem around the hive. Because this is the main role of honeybees. They are a very strong support of ecosystems. But are there ethical considerations that need to be taken into account when the approach you're taking is so intrusive? Tim Landgraf again. So I think it has two sides. One side is what are we actually doing to them and how does that differ to what they're normally doing? And I would say we are not wishing, we are not killing them, we are, we are dancing with them. It's actually a quite beautiful display, right? And the second thing is, so is their experience something related to pain or to discomfort? And again, I can't see any pain or discomfort there and there's no way we could ask them, right? And also insects are exempted from or excluded from ethics permits we have to, or would have to get for other types of animals. They're believed to not have pain because they, they are lacking those specific receptors. As I said, it's really beautiful when it works, when they're running after the robot and trying to decode the message, it's really a beautiful beautiful thing to see. And now let's meet another European researcher, again with a keen interest in building tiny artificial insects. I think our study is motivated by the realization of the important role that bees play in both wild and agricultural systems. Our work will not directly, you know, rescue bee populations, but it will 
hopefully contribute to making people realize further the importance of maintaining bee diversity. Mario Vallejo Marine, an environmental scientist with the University of Stirling in Scotland. And I think it's safe to say that his research is certainly creating a buzz. Well, buzz pollination is a very striking form of pollination in which bees use vibrations to shake pollen out of flowers. And to generate these vibrations, bees use these very powerful muscles that occupy the majority of their thorax. And they can uh, apply them on flowers and shake pollen out of them. And not all species of bees actually do this buzz pollination, do they? No, in fact, only 17% of the genera of bees around the world can buzz pollinate. But together, these genera make for about half of all the 21,000 bee species. So about half of all bee species around the world can buzz pollinate. So why, as a scientist, are you interested in buzz pollination? Well, buzz pollination is a very important type of pollination that affects more than 20,000 species of flowering plants. So these plants rely on these vibrations produced by bees to reproduce. It's also a tool that bees use to extract food to feed the larvae. And for very practical reasons, it's also the mode of pollination of some important crops, such as tomato, kiwi, blueberries, uh, eggplant, and so on. And is the type of buzz, is that specific to a, a, a type of crop? It's a really good question and something that we're just beginning to understand. It seems to be that flower characteristics or, for example, different crops may have different vibration properties. But what we don't know yet is if they require a specific vibration to reproduce. The work that we have done so far suggests that it's a bit more general than that. And as long as the bee can produce powerful enough vibrations, that's enough to get pollen out of different types of flowers. Now, Mario and his colleague, electrical engineer Noah Jaffris, have been funded to build their own buzzing bee, a micro-robot. And they've got less than three years to do it. So we're interested in understanding how bee diversity translates into different ways to produce and apply vibrations on flowers during buzz pollination. And one of the challenges that we faced when designing experiments to test this type of uh, questions is that current technology that mimics the vibrations produced by, by bees is relatively clunky and heavy and relies on these uh, one or two kilogram uh, devices that then you attach on flowers. So what we needed to capture that diversity of bee vibrations was to create a device that has this a similar weight and uh, size of a bee and can be applied on a flower. And this is where my colleagues, uh, Noah Jafferis, who is an expert in micro-robotics, and I started collaborating, creating these sub-robotic actuators that can replicate many of the main characteristics of a bee's buzz. But crucially, you're not trying to replace the bees. Absolutely. We are in no way trying to replace bees with robots. I think that's a counter productive for many reasons, in addition to probably being a very hard or impossible to do given the existence of 21,000 different types of bees. What we wanted to do was, uh, in fact, the, the opposite, to use robotics to understand what these different species of wild bees do during boss pollination. And I think this is a powerful way to demonstrate why we need to not only look at the bees, but make sure that they are, they are doing well in their, their wild environments. 
I think from our studies previously and, and ongoing, we have uh, good evidence that no all bees buzz the same. So you need to conserve more than just a handful of species. Mario Valjeco Marine. We are Aruga AI Farming, an Israel-based startup company. Our robots will treat and monitor every plant in greenhouses. Our first module, called Polly, is now... Aruga has a focus on crops that are grown indoors, in greenhouses, like trussed tomatoes, for instance. And they've chosen that focus, according to the company's CEO, Ido Geltner, because your average greenhouse has a very significant pollination problem. It doesn't let insects flow in and out freely. It doesn't let the wind pollinate. There are a lot of crops that are pollinated by wind that moves the pollen around. The flowers are, have to be shaken by the wind or insects or any other mechanical manual effort to release pollen within the same flower. And so when they were moved from the field into greenhouses to increase yields uh, to save pesticides and water, because it's a sustainable way to grow, for example, tomatoes and other crops, then the um, growers needed to find a solution for pollination. And they did it manually for many years until people uh, were able to rear these specific types of bumblebees that could put in hives in the greenhouse and you know, fly around the greenhouse and pollinate the tomato flowers. But with falling bee numbers, says Ido Geldner, it's now time to put some heavy-duty robots to work and take the weight off the bees. We actually have a ground robot, a quite large one, which travels on the ground along the plants and using cameras, it detects the plants and detects the flowers that are ready for pollination. And what it does in order to vibrate the flowers, it sends air pulses. So it does the vibration similar to what people use in manual pollination or what's done with the bumblebees, but does it non-contact robotically? The robot doesn't care if it's uh, hot or cold. It's not sensitive, you know, to other environmental conditions like lighting. It doesn't care if pesticides are used in the greenhouse at a specific time. And it can be calibrated, you know, for different varieties, for different weathers. And so it can reach optimal pollination. This is work in progress. We will add the, these abilities using uh, computer vision and later on other sensors to monitor the plants, right? The, the growers need to detect problems whether it's pester disease or other stresses, they need to find them very quickly so they correct the condition and uh, reach you know, optimal yields. And how successful has the device been so far in the tests that you've done? So in all tests, we've always shown that the results are as good as and up to a few percent higher than the yields at bumblebees, higher even in manual pollination. And that's been commercial use for a year and a half. We have customers in Australia, in Europe, in North America, and yeah, it's quite successful. There has been a lot of concern about bee populations around the world, but you don't see this, do you, as a replacement for bees? Exactly. There's a difference between the honeybees that pollinate orchards and these specific bumblebees that are reared in factories and sent in like cardboard box hives to the greenhouses. We have nothing to do with the honeybees, and yeah, it's, it's not related to that. This device has been used primarily, as I understand it, on tomatoes in greenhouses. But is it such that it could be used on any type of pollinating plant that's grown within a, a glasshouse? So with our specific pollination method using air pulses, which vibrate the flowers, it's not relevant to all the crops. 
but we've tested it, for example, on strawberries and uh, blueberries very successfully. It's also relevant to eggplants and uh, bell peppers. But our plan right now is to stick with tomatoes. And instead of pollinating more crops, we want to add additional robotic modules to replace other manual tasks that are done in the greenhouse. So kind of build uh, what we call the Swiss army knife, starting with tomatoes, which is the largest sector in the greenhouse farming. So potentially think about the grower that has a specific employee, a scouter that walks around in the greenhouse and collects data, both on stresses, pests, disease, and on kind of geometrical data of the plants, how fast it's growing, the color of the leaves, all kinds of stuff like that, number of flowers. And so they need this data both to prevent losses from stresses and diseases, but also to make sure that they're, they're treating the plants optimally, that the plants are growing uniformly in the greenhouse in optimal manner. And so imagine they do it on about 10 or 20 plants per hectare. That's out of 20 or 30,000 plants. So this is pretty uh, thin sampling. But imagine that the robot is driving near every plant every day in any case. And now with cameras and other sensors, it can do the job almost every day. So for pest and disease detection, you can basically find the, the very first outburst of a pest or disease in the greenhouse. And what that can do is uh, it prevents losses and you save a lot on treatment, right? You don't spray the whole greenhouse. That's what they usually do when they find a problem because they assume that if they find it, it's spread out in the greenhouse to some extent. Edo Geldner from the company Aruga AI Farming. And you're listening to Future Tense and a show about insects and pollination and better understanding the connection between the two. I'm Anthony Fennell. We've heard about several approaches to the issue today, each involving a different level of technical intervention. Alan Doran from Monash University appreciates the power that tech has to solve problems and create change. After all, his background is in data science and artificial intelligence. But he has a caution about becoming too invested in the idea of a technological fix. My approach to applying technology to any kind of study is to find a way that we can use it to better understand the natural environment. And then once we understand the natural environment and how it operates and how we interact with it, to be in a situation where we no longer need the technology. So one of the key ways in which we can do that is by using the technology to monitor what's going on in order to understand how insects interact with our flowering plants and crops so that once we understand that, we can provide better growing environments for our crops and better habitat for the insect pollinators that we're dependent on that support both crop development and insect health in order to provide better quality food for humans. So that monitoring step is an important one. And then I'd add the, the next stage of the process for me is to take what we learn through better monitoring, that is the data that we acquire through better monitoring, to build simulations that enable us to try out different scenarios in which our crops are better planted, in which our insects are better supported, to see how effective they'll be. So rather than just say, okay, this is what we know about 
insects, say, moving in greenhouses to say, well, how could we improve the greenhouse? So what my team does is we set up monitors in, in let's say, in, for the sake of this discussion, in greenhouses to work out how the insects are flowing throughout the greenhouse, which flowers they're visiting, which flowers they're missing. And we then look at taking that data and building a simulation at the level of an individual insect and an individual colony in the case of, say, honeybees. And we try out alternatives. So we might change the illumination in the greenhouse or we might move the position of the, the hives or we might plant the greenhouse crop in a different arrangement. And we use our simulations then to explore how the bees now move and we then document their pollination behaviour so that we can identify strategies for better supporting the insects to better provide pollination services. So this is about so, maximising the potential for pollination then, is it? It's about maximising the potential for pollination through improving the environments for the crops and the insects, yes. And how successful have you been in that endeavour? Well, we've done some initial trials. We've done some pilot studies. Our studies in monitoring, I, I think, are exemplary. We can collect very high-resolution data now on individual insect movements within crops. We can identify which insect species are the best pollinators for crops. We can decide which areas of a large greenhouse, like many hectares, are effectively visited by insects and which ones are lacking. So I'd say that part of the process, we're making great leaps and bounds. Our simulations have been used to inform the placement of what we call bee baffles, uh, which are methods of adjusting the movement of insects within the greenhouse. So one of the early discoveries we made in discussing uh, the pollination problems that some growers had was that insects in greenhouses, especially honeybees, uh, tend to follow rows of crop. And for production and harvesting reasons, just for maintenance reasons generally, that's often the way plants are arranged in greenhouses. But that's not what you want for cross-pollination. Often what you want for cross-pollination is for insects to move across the rows of crops to carry pollen in the direction that they don't usually move. So we wondered about inserting what we call bee baffles, which are just basically big bits of cardboard, if you like, or flute board, across the rows to divert bees from one row to another and sort of break that habit that they have of moving along the rows. And we were wondering where we should put these baffles. So for this, we used some simulations, uh, computer simulations, and we tried out different arrangements of baffles. And we ran some pilot studies to see how that influenced the insect behaviour. And we got some excellent results in our pilot studies, demonstrating the viability of the technology. We're still working on taking that further forward at this point, though, Anthony. And I imagine that using this approach, adopting this approach, would allow farmers to tailor a solution to their unique environment, one that will work with the insects and the crops that are in the environment that they're trying to manage. Yeah, that's exactly what's so important about this. You've hit the, the nail on the head there. So each growing environment is different. Varieties of crop vary in their attractiveness to insects. Different insect species interact with crops differently under different environmental conditions. So effectively, no two greenhouses are alike. So what we're looking to do is establish a standard approach for monitoring insect movement in a particular site and moving from that to a set of simulations that will enable that particular grower to work with that particular situation 
and enhance the pollination potential of the insect plant relationship so that they can then withdraw the technology and, and use it in a different location. So they don't become dependent on the technology in such a way as to require something as unsustainable as a robo bee. What we're trying to do is understand how technology can help us redesign those spaces, not just for the benefit of humans and the plants, but to support the insect pollinators to help us in pollinating our crops. Alan Doran there from Monash University. We also heard today from Ido Geltner, the CEO of Aruga, Mario Valjeco Marine from the University of Stirling, Tim Landgraf at the Free University in Berlin, and Thomas Schmickel at the University of Graz. Go to the Future Tense website if you want more details. And don't forget to send us an email if you have a topic suggestion or contact me via Twitter, where my handle is at Anthony J. Fennell. My thanks as always to co-producer Karen Savanovitz. I'm Anthony Fennell. Until next time. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.